I now call upon our brother John Launchbury to give to us the words of exhortation. Good morning, everyone. What a marvelous gathering this is this morning. On behalf of the young people, I'd like to extend a very warm welcome to uh, you older ones, you um, coming as visitors to this gathering. It's a tremendous benefit to the young people to be able to see a gathering like this, see such a large portion of the body of Christ gathered together. And on behalf of the older people, because young people, I'm afraid I have to group myself along with the older people these days, it's a tremendous blessing for us to be able to see so many young people who are once... Uh, who are at that stage in their life where they're turning their minds to the things of the Spirit, where they're looking at the Son of God and saying, that's the kind of man that I want to be like. That's the one that I want to follow, who are committing their lives to God. And it, it stirs us up and gives us greater strength to, to carry on as we see more people joining the, the ranks of the servants of God. And to you all, I bring the greetings and love of brothers and sisters from the northwest of America from Portland, Oregon. It's tremendous to be here. In our studies this week, we're going to be looking at principles of salvation. And the fundamental principle that we're going to base it on is the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so our exhortation this morning is going to be taken completely focused around the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. And if you've got your Bibles, I'd like you to open them, please, at Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14. Very plain, very simple statement. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity. Jesus was one of us. He had the same strengths and weaknesses that we have the same propensities that we have. He had them too. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity. We sometimes fall into the trap when we look at the work of Jesus in the Gospels and we see him going around preaching. We see him doing marvelous work and we think it was so easy for him. He could just do these things. He knew that God was there with him. The angels were around him. He could just go and do all these things. And we forget that he shared our humanity. And so he had times of weakness. He had times when he was down, when he was tired. He had times when he didn't know what to do. Chapter 4. Verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin, was tempted just like you are, just like I am. May not have been exactly the same temptations. That particular fancy sports car wasn't available to Jesus, but similar kinds of temptations that you face, he faced. So what I'd like us to do today is look at some of the temptations of Jesus and try to see what he did in his life in order to be able to go through temptation and come out the other side without sin. 
when you and I get into temptation, sometimes we manage to stand, and all too often we fall. And yet here is a man, a human like us, son of God, that's true, but one who shared our humanity, who through every temptation that he went through, he managed to succeed. He managed to come out the other side. So let's start in Luke chapter 4 with the, what are well known as the temptations of Christ. What I'm going to propose to you is that these were not the times when Jesus faced the greatest temptations of his life. Indeed, there's a, a slight puzzle, if we were to think of them as such, from verse 2, I'm sorry, verse 1, straight after Jesus' baptism, he returned from the Jordan, was led by the Spirit in the desert, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. In Matthew, I think it is, it says he was led to be tempted. So the Spirit takes Jesus and leads him into a position of temptation. And, and this word for leading is the same word that's used later on in the gospel when they're leading a donkey. Jesus was led into the wilderness in order to face temptation. And I think the reason for this is that this was a time when he was able to think about and prepare for the temptations that he would face later on in his time. He's going to have three and a half years of ministry ahead of him. He's just been baptized. The Spirit has descended upon him bodily, and the Spirit now leads him into the wilderness to consider who he is, and how he should behave. And for 40 days, he eats nothing. And with the clarity that comes from that, he considers situation after situation. What should I do to do the will of God? I'm hungry. These stones look like bread. I have the power to turn them into bread. Yes, but if I start using the power of God to feed my own appetites, where will it stop? I look around and I see the hunger and the poverty and the injustice of the world. And I know that my Father's plan calls for something in the future to solve this. But what about now? What about today? I have the power. I have the power to be a great ruler, to bring love and kindness and compassion and justice to the people of this land and the people of the world. But I would have to do it by following myself and not my father. Or how about when I preach and I tell them about the things of God and they don't listen? How do I show them who I am? How do I show them the presence of God in my life? I could go to the temple. I could cast myself down. And I know the Scripture. He will command His angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you'll not strike your foot against a stone. But in this time of preparation that He has, this time of preparation, He's able to think through. He's able to realize that this is putting God to the test. He's able to realize that converts who are gained by a flashy miracle like this are not true converts. They're like the seed that is planted in rocky ground that, that grows up, but then as soon as the sun shines on it, it starts to wither. 
And so Jesus, for six weeks, straight after his baptism, spends time thinking about how he should behave when confronted by temptation. And these are real temptations that are going to afflict him in the next three and a half years. Luke makes a very strong point in this chapter of of showing us this happening. We find in verse 14, immediately after we get back from um, the desert, he returned to Galilee, the power of the Spirit, news about him spread, he taught in the synagogues, everyone praised him. That's the Capernaum ministry there in two verses, because Luke wants to get on to Nazareth. He wants to get on to Nazareth so that we can see the effect of the work in the wilderness. And so now Jesus is in Nazareth, and he's there in the synagogue. He speaks. He speaks about the work of God, and they consider that his words are gracious. And then he points out some of their failings. I tell you the truth, no prophet is accepted in his hometown I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time. When the sky was shut for three and a half years, there was a severe famine throughout the land. Why didn't the people of Israel come to Elijah, he says? He had to find someone outside the land, outside the people of promise, who would believe in him, who would receive gifts from his hand. And it's like that with you, he says to the people in his hometown. And they're furious with him. A few minutes ago, they were praising him for the gracious, the gifted words that he was speaking, and now they're furious with him, and they take him out to the hill, and they're about to cast him down the hill. But we read that he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. When I was growing up, it was pointed out to me how impressive it is, the personal presence of Jesus that he was able to turn and face down a crowd and walk out through their midst. Brothers and sisters, that's not what's impressive about this. What's impressive about this is that he didn't let them throw him down. What would happen if he did? What would happen if he said, go on then, throw me off the cliff? He knows the Scripture. He will command His angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you'll not strike your foot against a stone. What a miracle. What a a tremendous way to preach to these who, who don't believe in Him, to His brothers and His sisters, His uncles and aunts and the cousins and the rest of the family and people that He's known growing up. Suddenly they would realize who He was. Suddenly they would follow Him. And I suggest to you that had Jesus not spent the six weeks earlier on in his life thinking through exactly this kind of issue, if he had to resolve this issue there at that moment, he might have made a different decision. But it's because he had put in the preparation, because he had thought about the Scriptures, because he was tuning his mind to be able to discern righteousness from sin, that he was able to say, no, I won't let you do this to me, and turn and walk through the crowd. And thank God, truly thank God that he did. For if he hadn't, we might not be here this morning.
Come to Matthew 14. Have some water. Matthew chapter 14, well-known incident, feeding of the 5,000. Jesus has been preaching with them for a number of days. They've been following him. It's a deserted area. And um, does this marvelous miracle of providing for them. And someone commented to me the other day that um, I'll be speaking in front of 600. It's, well, only a tiny proportion of, of how many Jesus spoke in front of. <laughs> At least I don't have to provide you with lunch afterwards. But here's Jesus. He does this remarkable miracle of providing the people with sustenance. They're fainting. Some of them might die before they get home had Jesus not provided for them. And out of a tiny amount, he's able to provide for this great big group. Verse 20, they all ate and were satisfied. The disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was about 5,000 men besides women and children. Carrying on reading, immediately... Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray, and when evening came, he was praying there alone. Got a strange transition there. One minute, he's feeding the people. The next minute, he's making the disciples get into a boat, he's dismissing the crowd, and he's going up onto the hillside to pray, and he prays well into the night. What's going on? Well, John gives us uh, a key piece to it. Keep your fingers in Matthew, if you would, please, and come across to John, John's Gospel, John chapter 6. It's exactly the same incident. At your leisure, you can look at it afterwards and confirm for yourself that it's the parallel incident, the feeding of the 5,000. Verse 14 of John chapter 6. After the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. They know Moses' writing. They know that another prophet like Moses is to arise. Surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. So we're going to have to put together a few pieces we have the sense of the people starting to say, this is the prophet. This one could be our king. And you can imagine the buzz starting in the crowd in various places and people starting to get excited. This man could drive away the Romans. This man could establish the kingdom to Israel. This man could bring the reign of God. We want this man as our king. Let's make him king. Let's make him king. And how do you think the disciples would react? Master, do you hear what they're saying about you? Master, maybe this is what we've been working for. Maybe this is the opportunity. Maybe now is the time for us to go down to Jerusalem. Now is the time when God will restore the kingdom to Israel. Brothers and sisters, I suggest to you that Jesus was tempted. We know from Luke 4 and Matthew 4 that this is a temptation that he is susceptible to. We know that this is something that he would dearly love to do. He doesn't want to be king in order to wield power. 
He wants to be king in order to bring love and compassion, in order to bring justice, in order to remove suffering. And now is his opportunity. And the people are saying, be our king. And the disciples are saying, be our king. Now is the time. And he wants it. He wants it. But he knows it's not right. And so what does he do? It's very interesting. If you're back in uh, Matthew chapter 14, it says, immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side. If you glance ahead a few verses, you'll notice that a storm is brewing on that sea. And these are are Galilean fishermen. They know this lake. He says, get into the boat. They say, but master, there's a storm brewing. And he says, go. They have to go. He has to get rid of the forces of temptation. And he dismisses the crowd. Go. And he goes up to a mountain and he prays and he prays and he prays. So what do you do when you're tempted? What do I do? The victory that he accomplishes here is remarkable. As he says no to sin, as he says, I will not go that way. I will go the way of my Father. And he comes down from this mountain and he walks on the water. Not metaphorically, he literally walks on the water. And if you ever want to have an example of what overcoming sin can accomplish, look at this man. Look at this man. Peter is delightful here, of course, because he's there in the boat. The disciples, they're they're kind of like us in so many ways. The disciples have been rowing, and they've spent hours rowing, 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 and the wind is against them. And after hours' worth of rowing, they're halfway, three and a half miles out of a seven-mile journey. After Hours and hours of rowing. It's the fourth watch of the night. So they could well have been rowing for nine hours to get three and a half miles. That's like you and me all too often. But Jesus, who spent that time in prayer, comes down and walks on the water and would be there ahead of them. Except they see him and they call out. And he said, Don't don't be afraid. It's I. I'm I'm going on ahead of you. And Peter, if only we had faith as much as Peter. Peter says, Lord, if it is you, bid me to get out of the boat. And here's Peter stepping out of a boat onto the water. I mean, have you ever really thought about, are you one of the disciples that's still sitting in the boat saying, Peter, what on earth are you doing? Have you gone mad, Peter? But he gets out of that boat. And the Lord saves him. And when the Lord joins them, of course, the wind dies down. And suddenly they're, they're at their destination. It's not so hard when the wind is no longer blowing against you. 
Let's go to Gethsemane. Matthew 26. One of the things I said to the young people yesterday was that as we start to think about the principles of salvation and the work of our Lord Jesus Christ, we're standing truly on holy ground. And above any other passage of Scripture, I suggest to you that here in Gethsemane is holy ground. Here we have the heart of our Lord and Savior laid bare for us to see. What do we do with it? That choice is ours. Do we trample all over it with boots? Or do we come to it humbly and meekly, hoping to learn from this giant of a man who's nonetheless willing to lay his heart open for us? He took Peter, verse 37, and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Where have you seen Jesus exaggerate? Nowhere. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. I am so sad. I could die. And why? I think partly because of Judas. He dearly loved Judas. He dearly hoped to save Judas. And he's gone. And that has hit Jesus so hard. And he's brought three others with him, the three that he has kept close to him, particularly through this last year of the ministry. Stay here. Keep watch with me. This agony of Jesus has been going on for a long time. Let me just read a a verse in, in John 12. This is a week earlier, John 12 and verse 27, where he says, Now my heart is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. His heart was troubled. That was a week before. His heart has been troubled all week. And now he's overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. There's echoes of the Psalms. So many of the Psalms are expressing the emotion of Jesus. And in Psalm 42, again, I'll just read a few verses of Psalm 42. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Where can I go and meet with God? My tears have been my food day and night, while men say to me all day long, Where is your God? These I remember as I pour out my soul, how I used to go with the multitude, leading the procession to the house of God, with shouts of joy and thanksgiving among the uh, festive throng. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here. Keep watch with me. In Luke 12, he says, 
I've come to bring fire on the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to undergo, and how distressed I am until it is completed. He shared in our humanity, brothers and sisters. He was one of us. And he's facing this agonizing death. And he's facing it willingly. Verse 39, going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. This is the essence of the choice. This is overcoming temptation. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Father, I dearly, desperately wish that you would ask me to do something different. But if this is what you want me to do, then it's what I want to do. And he spends hour upon hour upon hour preparing his mind, considering what's going to happen the following day, knowing that when he's up there on the cross, the people will go past him, jeering at him. He saved others. He can't save himself. If you're the Christ, prove it. Come down from the cross. And he could. He had the power. How would he resist? Because it's not merely about avoiding the pain and avoiding the humiliation, but it's about making a point. It's about saving someone else who didn't believe in him and now would suddenly believe in him. He could go on the pinnacle of the temple and cast himself down. Yet not as I will. but as you will. And he returns to the disciples and he finds them sleeping. Could you men not keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He's not just talking about Peter. He's talking about himself. This is exactly what he's doing. He is watching and praying so that he will not fall into temptation. His spirit is indeed willing, but his flesh indeed is weak, and he knows it. He shares in our humanity. And what he does is he goes away and he prays and he thinks and he considers what it will be like the next day. And he considers how he will feel and he prepares his mind to be able to endure, to be able to stand up, to be able to, true, to be true to what he wants. And us and Peter and the other disciples... All too often we're sleeping. Yes, I know I'll have hard temptations tomorrow. Better get a good night's rest. And yet Jesus says, 
I know it will be hard tomorrow. I'd better prepare. I need to spend this time with my father. He went away a second time and prayed. My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. Luke tells us that as he was praying, such was his agony of prayer that the sweat was dropping like drops of blood from him. Think of what he's to face the next day as he's there on that cross. He's not trapped into this. He's able to get out of it at any point. The Father has got 72,000 angels on call Six legions of angels. Do you not think I can call on my Father and He will at once put at my disposal six legions of angels, He says? Think how powerful one angel was with Sennacherib's army. 72,000 angels are there on call for the Son to say, no, I don't want to do it. And the Father would rescue him. That's astonishing. And such is the commitment of our Lord to following his Father's will that he says, I choose to do this. I choose to go through with this. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Peter's going to face temptation the next day. A servant girl's going to come up to him and say, you were one of them, and he won't be prepared. And he'll say a white lie. And then someone else will come up to him and push him a little harder, and that lie will get darker. And then someone else will say something to him, and he will call down curses from heaven upon himself. I don't know this man. That's how it works. And Jesus knows that that's how it works. And he exhorts Peter and he exhorts us to pray so that we don't fall into temptation. And he does that. Such is his commitment to righteousness. We're about to break bread, share the fruit of the vine, take the cup of the Lord. As we take these symbols of his commitment to his Father's will, we should be shocked. Every Sunday, we should be shocked at how seriously he took sin and how casually we tend to take it. I'd like to finish by going back into Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 5. Verse 8. Although he was a son, although he was the Son of God... 
He learned obedience from what he suffered. Or chapter 2 and verse 18, because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Gethsemane was temptation. And look at the agony that he went through. Gethsemane was where the victory was won. Calvary was where the victory was declared to the world. The victory was won in Gethsemane the night before. That's where the agony was. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Chapter 4, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need.